0: Welcome to the number one South Asian radio station in North America, Ruckus Avenue Radio.
1: I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose, and what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by Ashwani Jain, who's aiming to become the next governor in the state of Maryland. Stay tuned. You know, during my own career in medicine as a pediatrician, and even beyond those walls, I've gratefully met lots of talented and high achieving youth and young people. But I've been profoundly inspired by those young people who've survived cancer, and taken their courage and motivation to not only beat their disease, but to also translate the lessons of their own journey into innovations and amazing community outcomes. So with that backdrop, I was compelled and so very grateful to meet Ashwani Jain, a cancer survivor who's running for Governor of Maryland in the upcoming 2022 election. He's hoping to become the first millennial governor in the U.S. and Maryland's first ever governor of color. Ashwani was born and raised in Maryland by immigrant parents, and his public service experiences working with President Obama in the White House in several roles, and at that time with Vice President Biden on the Cancer Moonshot Project, are true highlights. He served as a community organizer and essentially a get-things-done type of leader in a variety of areas in the public and private sector. Oh, and let's not ignore all of this while caring for elders and his family and helping as an ambassador for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. In this new post-2020 election cycle landscape, Ashwani is bringing his record and a tone of perspective, vulnerability, and empathy as a Democratic candidate in this race. We had a chance to catch up as he reflected on the one-year mark of isolation during this global pandemic. Yeah,
0: so, you know, kind of looking a step back, I don't think any of us expected that, you know, a year in we'll still be, uh, you know, being forced to socially distance from everyone, being isolated from friends and family. Uh, you know, I myself have been working remotely and haven't really left my house in about a year as well. Right. Um, so, so I think, you know, it's it was a journey that we did not expect, but, you know, we're here Uh, And I think in terms of a takeaway, right, one is this understanding that tomorrow is not promised or guaranteed. Uh, That's something that I learned in my life as as a cancer survivor. You know, you've learned yourself as a a medical practitioner, uh, working with patients directly. Uh, But now a lot of other folks, unfortunately, are understanding that, you know, you have to appreciate every single day because you never know what's going to happen. And I think for a lot of us, uh, you know, this idea of understanding our own mental health, has become a lot more important. Uh, you know, for me, I've battled physical, and mental health issues uh, for a lot of my life. Um, you know, with COVID, I lost an uncle due to COVID uh, a couple of months ago, which was really tough. Couldn't even go to his funeral. Um, mm-hmm. I also went through a, a divorce, uh, a relationship that just wasn't working out, um, and you know, feeling the these feelings of sadness and and frustration and depression, and not even being able to leave my house or see a lot of my friends and family. Um, so for me, it's been really tough, but again, I've been very fortunate still. So not only, you know, just trying to understand what other people are going through, you know, it's, it's a struggle. Um, and so that ties into, I guess today, uh, and specifically my campaign to serve as Maryland's next governor, you know, understanding that before we open up back in person, whether you're talking about schools or businesses, we need to first ensure that a majority of our residents are vaccinated. Right. And then in addition to that, ensuring that everyone still follows mask and social distancing protocols. And I think if we don't have that, and we've seen this uh, throughout the country where people are opening up too soon, Hmm. what ends up happening then is we're going to keep opening and closing. We're going to delay economic recovery and put everyone in more danger. And so from a policy standpoint, being very careful of understanding the frustration, but also making sure that we are Uh, putting ourselves in a position for success and not further failure.
1: You know, and for the South Asian community in particular, this is one where we've had to straddle this, not only with what the current situation is uh, here in this country, but also paying attention to what loved ones and family um, are doing globally. And, you know, have you had to have you reflected a little bit about um, because we're no longer living in communities that are microcosms, but rather so well connected? How has this, uh, you know, sort of resonated with you personally? You mentioned you've had some family members who've, who've gone through this. And as we go forward, do you think that we're going to still remain connected globally? Or will there be a new norm um, when we think about how we connect with each other globally?
0: So I think using this virtual space and now the fact that most people understand how to use Zoom, how to use FaceTime. Like, for example, my Nana, uh, you know, he's uh, going to turn 85 and he's very, you know, he's very traditional. He didn't understand how to use FaceTime or or, kind of use his computer, laptop, iPad. And now that we're all forced to, even someone like him has understood that. Um, And in that context, I feel like we're actually more connected now. Uh, to some degree, right? We can actually meet uh, with more people, catch up with more people, have more social virtual gatherings uh, than maybe in the past we would have been able to. That being said, right, the physical uh, 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 touch is still really important and and definitely is missing. But I think this is going to be a new norm. Even when we go back to in-person, this hybrid of in-person and virtual, um, I think is going to remain because, you're able to do a lot more. And for example, on a campaign standpoint, it's allowed me to run a more accessible campaign, reaching out to individuals uh, who, you know, who live kind of farther away, who don't have the time to get involved in politics or even in their own communities because they have so many other responsibilities. Uh, Now, the fact that they can sit at home, easily go from meeting to meeting on a virtual setting uh, has made it a lot easier for them.
1: Does does that make relationship development when you're uh in politics that much more challenging or for that is it just changed the framework maybe of how you develop those relationships?
0: I think it's just changed. Um, you know, I used to think it was gonna be more challenging building those one-on-one relationships over Zoom yeah. when I myself am, am a very more, you know, personable person in you know in the reality. Um, or at least I think I am. Uh but I think you know if you stay true to yourself, and this is going to sound really cheesy, but if you stay true to who you are, and if who you are is naturally liking to connect with people, you can find a way around it. For me, you know, so far, my entire campaign is 100% virtual, and I haven't had any difficulties getting people to support the campaign, volunteer with the campaign, uh, even understand their issues and, and having them open up and share their personal stories. I have found that to be uh, just as successful as when I was doing things in person.
1: Looking at your, your story and your background, it, it certainly started with your grandfather um, immigrating uh, and then working as a high school janitor. How, how did that story and narrative kind of um, impact your own upbringing in Maryland? Did it foster empathy with others? Were there connections that were made because of that? How, how did that, in fact, build your story today?
0: Uh, I mean, it's everything about my story, um, you know, I, so like what I always tell people is I don't come from a politically well connected family, which I think is a, is a big misconception that people have, especially in immigrant communities, that the only way to get involved in politics or make your voice heard is if you have all this money or all these connections. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't start off with any of that. And like you mentioned, my grandfather, my nana, immigrated to this country with limited resources, worked as a high school janitor to provide for a family of seven. Uh, later, my mother worked at a nursing home making the minimum wage to pay for classes at a community college. My father, he was highly educated in India, but when he moved to this country, uh, he couldn't find work because of the language barrier. Um, And so kind of understanding where I come from, understanding what my family has gone through and the sacrifices they made to provide opportunities for me and my sister, you know, that is a, a very similar story to a lot of immigrants and a lot of immigrant children. Uh, but it it shows us the importance of hard work, Um, the fact that you can have a partner in your government, uh, local, state, and federal, Um, the fact that it's important to make your voice heard, get involved in the community, and also this idea of giving back uh, to a community that has given people like us so much. Uh, And that's really the genesis of why I got involved in public service in the first place Mm. Um, and, and why I feel uh, like that story can resonate with a lot of folks and and that allows me to kind of put myself in the shoes of others which I think any elected official at any level needs to be able to do.
1: Do you have to go through some of these pathways in order to really appreciate the joy of giving back? Meaning, you know, for those who are going through it and struggling so much, there's a lot of, you know, self-preservation and if if anything just sort of survival especially in the climate that we've experienced these last four years. Um, you know, for you, did, was, has there always been that balance of not only just sort of hard work and dedication, but, you know, it being paid forward, if you will, or the joy of giving back? Have you been able to maybe marry both of those together?
0: So as a starting point, I don't think uh, you need to go through something really serious or traumatic or have, you know, necessarily the same exact experiences in order to understand this idea of empathy, compassion, giving back to others, uh, you know, this idea that uh, if you're fortunate enough to open a door of opportunity for yourself, there's an obligation to keep that door open for those behind you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it really comes back to, um, you know, either looking at what your own family has gone through, looking at your own personal experiences, or getting out and and doing stuff in the community, right? Volunteering. Uh, People can volunteer regardless of their own personal experiences. And just seeing that there are a lot of other people who are going through the same, if not worse struggles than you are. Uh, And for me, right, my eyes were opened very early on. um, uh, And so I got to see that and it was kind of forced on me, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, But, you know, you you definitely don't need to go through something traumatic in order to appreciate that. Uh, At the same token, I think, uh, you know, for me hoping to be the next governor of my state, hoping to be an elected official, uh, I think that's the, the thing that I communicate to voters, is when you look at all these great candidates that are running for different offices, think about who can really put themselves in your own shoes, who can really understand your day-to-day struggles. Because in the end of the day, that is going to dictate how policy is created and enforced, which will ultimately affect your life. Uh, and so the case that I make, the argument that I make is I have a lot of great professional experiences, but I also have a lot of personal experiences that can relate to you and that can understand what you're going through. And that's how I would lead if I have the honor of winning the election.
1: You're hoping to be the first millennial governor um, who's been elected in in the United States. And what does it really mean to be a millennial South Asian in 2021, especially in the framework of, of the broader community?
0: Uh, So in terms of the broader community, I'll start with that. I think, you know, a lot of us as South Asians, Asians, Indians, immigrants, uh, we typically historically have not gotten involved in in politics and public service. And what that has led to is elected officials who don't know our lives, uh, who don't come from our kind of communities, uh, and then them making policies that are impacting us regardless Uh, but are maybe not done in the most comprehensive or thoughtful or sustainable ways. Mm. And so what I have always tried to do in my adult life is open those doors of opportunity, show our community, and also show young people that you can get involved, you can make your voice heard. And if you do so, not only are we increasing in terms of the demographics of the country as a whole, so we need to be at that table of power, but we also are able to encourage other elected officials to make better policies. Um, so, so that's in terms of the community as a whole, you know, as, as a young person, you know, the, the thing that I find funny is in every election, you'll hear from established leaders, from politicians that they, you know, we want more young people and more diverse volunteers. Right. But I have found that there's a disconnect with their words and their actions, because not only do I often find myself still as one of the youngest and few people of color at political events, Mm. but I've also seen this quick dismissal anytime people like me attempt to pursue leadership roles, you know, that challenge the status quo or focus on issues that we're gonna be held accountable for in the future, even when we are prepared to do the work. And so it seems like a lot of those leaders you know, they want our hope, our energy, our determination, especially as South Asians who uh, have done very well in this country. You know, these politicians want our money, yeah.
1: um,
0: but only when they decide it's okay. And mm. so that is a narrative that I'm hoping to change uh, through my campaign and through the kinds of policies I'm proposing and also the accessibility and inclusivity of my operation itself.
1: Well, and I mean, you know, in some ways, it's a, a great empowering feeling to sort of say hey yes you're you're becoming more civically engaged but on top of that um does it strike uh some challenge when you're trying to build coalitions with some of those groups who are are steeped in this kind of you know tradition of 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 power wielding perhaps in in some of the institute political institutions that that we face
0: there's definitely i found there's definitely going to be some roadblocks right There are going to be some people who are going to do the same old way of thinking Um, But, you know, I've still reached out to them and and backed it up with not only this hopeful inclusion vision that I have, but backing it up with specific policies. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of the first strategy that I have. But then the second thing is trying to go outside of those group of people. Right. Expand the base, Uh, reach out to rural communities, uh, high schoolers, college students, uh, nonprofits, uh, places and organizations and individuals that may not vote in the highest voting numbers, may not be well established, but they're part of our communities and need to be felt as such. And so what I'm doing is really emphasizing that group and showing them that, hey, I value your opinion. I want you to get involved in the campaign and actually have leadership roles in my campaign, help me dictate and influence policymaking uh, and and the kind of outreach strategies that we do. Um, So that's, I would say the second thing. And then the third thing is, helping people, especially in the establishment, understand that the times have changed. Uh, You know, the demographics of our nation and the voting population has changed. There are a lot more younger and diverse people uh, who have gotten involved in politics at all levels. Um, You know, and so showing that, hey, this is not just some hopeful vision I have, but it also speaks to the moment in time that we are in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is, you know, you can have both, right? You can have some of this establishment, understanding and values while also being open to new ideas and fitting in with the times that we're in.
1: In my career, I've cared for a lot of teenagers who've fought uh, cancer and um, you as a cancer survivor, you know, certainly have, you know, courageously gone through this. Because you know, cancer is in many ways uh, agnostic to ethnicity and socioeconomics, and um, but there are so many different intersectionalities um, with your own kind of career uh, as well as your your own personal history um, with cancer. Um, your work on the Cancer Moonshot and and certainly support for for healthcare for Maryland residents. You know, tell me some of the lessons. From those experiences, and particularly how they're continuing to inform you as you you're starting your campaign.
0: So, um, so I'm 31. 18 years ago, when I was 13, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They found that I tumor at a very early stage. I was very fortunate to only have to go through four months of chemotherapy. My parents had health insurance, so we were able to pay all the bills. Um, and and so. You know, going through that process, even though I was lucky and fortunate compared to a lot of the other kids that I was getting treated alongside, um, you know, I felt really depressed, I felt scared, Um, I felt guilt for the pain that I saw I was causing my family. Um, And I also saw that some people were talking about me like I was just a statistic, as opposed to talking with me as a human being. Hmm. And so all of that, you know, kind of put things in perspective, uh, and allowed me, I think, a path to turn from survivor to advocate, you know, giving me a sense of purpose, helping me use some of the challenges I went through in, in, a, in a positive way and help others who are going through something similar. Uh, share my story. Uh, and that's also what helped me get involved in politics to, to start making changes beyond my community uh, and also work on policies that expand access for healthcare care uh, for folks who were similar to me and similar uh, and not similar to me. Yeah. um, and so you know, kind of what that means and what that's led to is understanding that if you are someone who also feels hopeless or helpless because of your daily struggles, whether they're health related or not, right? everyone's going through something. Um, so being able to understand that and and showing them that, hey, I've also been at rock bottom. I've also battled physical and mental health issues. Um, but I've worked on, healing my wounds and then have also tried to help others do the same and I think that is the kind of mentality that we should want in our elected officials and really leaders of any field.
1: You speak uh, uh, very passionately about caring for your grandmother. Um, and, and certainly, you know, in our South Asian community, we, we have so, you know, such deep roots in extended families tell me a little bit about the importance of kind of that generational connectivity i mean we, we have a huge segment of our population that's aging and especially as someone who's aiming to be a millennial governor how do we continue to build and develop those connections and relationships with other generate across generations to be more successful and sort of you know carry our our communities forward
0: I mean, we have to take care of our seniors, uh, regardless of of what our backgrounds are, Um, but for context, uh, and you understand this and a lot of your listeners may understand this. um, But if you're a non immigrant, if or at least, uh, you know, a non South Asian, a non Asian, um, you know, you don't understand this idea of living in a multi generational home. Uh, And so a lot of times, you know, I tell people, yes, I live with my grandmother, my parents and my sister. But it doesn't mean that I'm not capable of making adult decisions or have real responsibility. In in American culture, that's kind of the concept that, oh, if you're an older person, if you're an adult and you still live with your parents or your grandparents, that means you must not be able to take care of yourself.
1: And it's Um, almost we we touched upon this um, in that, you know, the sort of such a different frame of mind when you say that they're living with you, perhaps, right. um, versus you living with them. and um, But definitely, that, that resonates a lot, definitely, in immigrant communities.
0: Yeah. yeah, and right, exactly. It's a very common practice of our culture and something that many immigrants do. And so, you know, I'm very proud and, and honored and humbled that I can live uh, together with my extended family uh, in this multi-generational home, and we all take care of each other. Yeah. Um, and so what that has led to, right, is this constant understanding that, Ah, uh, you have to support people regardless of what their age is. So whether you're talking about children and looking at affordable childcare, or looking at uh, seniors and helping them age in place. Uh, you know, in my case, right, my my grandmother lives with us, so we're able to provide her a lot of support. But for those, uh, you know, senior residents and senior citizens who uh, are not able to live with their families, as an elected official, hopefully, it's helping them live a better, independent life, a comforting life a safe and accessible and affordable life. Um, And that means, you know, more support for direct services that address mental and physical health issues and activities, uh, addressing more multilingual specialists, Mm -hmm. uh, making sure as we construct and build our homes and our cities and our towns, that they're accessible, they're near transit, Um, you know, multi-living facilities, I think is also important when we're investing in, looking at our nursing homes. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of, and this ties into really what we're going through right now with COVID, uh, many of the the debts that have occurred uh, through COVID have actually come from nursing homes. Yeah. All right. And so actually, you know, investing in more direct care staff, making sure we have more protocols in, in place um, to assist a lot of these residents who uh, typically don't get a lot of support and are pretty much just pushed aside because maybe they don't vote anymore. Maybe they're uh, not coming out to events or they don't have a lot of disposable income. Um, but again, they're a part of our communities and they've actually helped build our, you know, build our communities. Yeah. And so we have to make sure that they're able to stay in our communities and live uh, really healthy, productive lives, uh, you know, for the remainder of their future.
1: When I mean, you know, it really touches upon the kind of social fabric of taking the culture of an immigrant family, building it now into different policies and and hopefully extending that out to um, other communities in the community at large, and, and I really love the framework that you you've talked about, which is you know you use this model of relief, recovery, and reform to describe some of your policies. and And when I think about that and reflect on that, I, I think of sort of the relief as a very personal um, aspect, the recovery is sort of more of a a group aspect or, or community aspect, and and the reform really thinks about um, structural or institutional level. And you know, is it designed to be that sort of linear process or, or sequential process, or must the priority be for actually all three of those?
0: I think all three. Um, you know, It's one of the issues that I've seen a lot of elected officials do, which is one of the reasons why we have a lot of the same debates uh, over the same issues in every election cycle. I don't care where you live in this country or what <laughs> level you're talking about. We always hear the same issues all the time. I think part of the reason is we are not reforming the systems themselves. And then the other part is we tend to view issues in silos. When we talk about climate change, or criminal justice reform, or affordable housing, education, healthcare, care, uh, now even COVID relief, we tend to put these in buckets. And instead, the reality is they're all interconnected. Hmm. And so when I talk about my relief recovery reform platform, it is showing that these issues are not living in silos. Uh, and they need to be addressed in a comprehensive manner. Uh, And so, you know, relief, what can we do immediately? Recovery, how do we provide more long-term solutions? And then reform, how do we look at the systems themselves so we don't have these problems again in the future? Uh, And I've also included ways to pay for all my ideas. Uh, And, you know, people can go to my website, janeforgovernor.com, to kind of see how I'm thinking about these issues, the specific proposals I have. And I think that is a model that could be shared and implemented across this country Uh, for any office that someone might be running for, or any office that a voter could be looking at, uh, in terms of their elected officials, right? Really, how do we stop this cycle uh, and and break free of some of these things that we keep facing?
1: You know, that speaks definitely to those who are vulnerable or marginalized. And, you know, with respect to that, it being National uh, Women's History Month, Tell me a little bit about how important this has been to you sort of personally to both celebrate um, and honor that history, but by also pushing forward for for more empowerment uh, for women. How has this been resonant for you, um, both personally and professionally?
0: Uh, I've been very blessed to be raised by a mother who's very strong, taught me a lot of great values. Uh, My nani, my maternal grandmother, before she passed away a couple of years ago, uh, was one of my best friends. Uh, I'm not afraid to admit that. I, you know, I used to call her every single day. Um, no
1: shame No shame in that game, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but again, going back to some of the specific issues, understanding that every issue is a woman's issue yeah. and women's issues are human rights issues. And so again, not putting them in a silo, not putting them in a bucket and saying, okay, we're only going to talk about women's rights and women's issues in this context, but really it's expansive. Yeah, uh, and so for me as a hopeful policymaker, it's looking at equal employment, looking at equal access to childcare, looking at reproductive justice, so that all these essential healthcare services are provided and not discriminated against uh, based on you know the fact that you are a woman uh, or you live in a certain zip code or area. Yeah. Um, and so figuring out how do we address these issues again in a comprehensive way, elevate the voices of these people who are facing uh, a lot of these challenges. Um, And right, when we talk about COVID, the fact that a lot of the job loss that has occurred when it comes to economic recovery, a lot of them have been faced by women and specifically women of color. Um, So again, right, understanding that all these issues are interconnected and we have to address them in a comprehensive, thoughtful and sustainable way.
1: Ashwani, we only have a few minutes left and and I've asked this to others who've been guests on on the program, but someone running for elected office um, with certainly the high stakes of Maryland's future um, involved, and and as you go through this campaign, what what makes you an entrustable candidate? Uh, you know, our our idea of putting trust in our institutions and our public officials is really really important um, across the board. So so how do Maryland voters now and Maryland residents really entrust you with with their vote?
0: I have to earn it, first of all, right? I I have to go out there and and show voters that not only is a successful governor one who understands how the systems of power work, but also understands the real impact of those policies. Uh, For me, for almost two decades, I've advocated for public policy at all levels of government. Uh, I've had leadership roles with President Obama and then Vice President Biden. I've worked in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. So I understand how the systems of power work. No. But more importantly, and this touches this idea of trust, you can trust me because you know I'm a product of public schools. I grew up seeing my parents struggle to start a small business while keeping the lights on in our two bedroom apartment. I've lived in densely populated urban areas as well as rural suburbs that have been surrounded by farms and forests. I'm a son of immigrants who's been bullied by racists because of my name and my brown skin. Uh, I'm a millennial who's been told to sit down and be quiet even when I was the leader on certain projects. And as a cancer survivor, like we talked about, I battled both physical and mental health issues and never thought I would get a second chance at life. And so for a lot of those reasons, I genuinely understand the day-to-day struggles of many folks across my state. Uh, And for that reason, I think I have the trustworthiness, the experience, the perspective, the vulnerability, as well as the empathy needed uh, to serve people well in this position.
1: Ashwani, it's, it's terrific to, to meet you, it's a terrific to chat with you, and I hope we can check in with you during the campaign as it goes forward. Best, best of luck for everything.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you again for uh, creating this platform for, for South Asians uh, and people like us.
1: You've been listening to Trust Me. I know what I'm doing. So for all you millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Y, Gen Z, boomers, and Zoomers, you can catch us every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio through the Dash Radio app and wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, I'm at friend, and you can find more info at abhayadhandekar.com. Till next time, I'm Abhayadhandekar.